the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. What God wants is not just religious talk. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. He didn't just want your church attendance. He wants your heart. He's not impressed with what you give in the offering. He wants your heart. He's not impressed by raised hands and worship if the heart's not there. What he wants more than any of our religiosity or spiritual expressions is the heart. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Isaiah. As Pastor Gary continues his teaching series through the book of Isaiah, he'll be exhorting you to come to God with a pure heart and to realize he desires an intimate relationship, not a mere religious one. Numerous times throughout the Bible, God rebuked his people for coming to him with their lips but having their hearts far from Him. God doesn't care about the religious deeds you perform. He cares about your relationship with Him. When you have a thriving relationship with God, good deeds naturally flow. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Isaiah chapter 1. As he continues his message, let's reason together. The last group we see here, the defiant toward God in verse 4, he says, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have, notice the words, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Isaiah says here, the people have forsaken God. In other words, they have left Him. They've abandoned Him. He says they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. Some translations say they've provoked God or they've despised God. In other words, they've antagonized Him. And they have turned their backs on Him. When you turn your back to someone, if they're speaking to you, what is that a statement of? Rejection. I I don't want to listen to you. I reject you. That's what they've done in relation to God. So all three of these groups, the disobedient, the ignorant, the defiant, they're all guilty before God. And we're going to see here in the first few chapters four quick things about what they did wrong. Now, let me tell you in advance, as we're going to look at these four things, just just a quick survey of the first few chapters of Isaiah. What did the disobedient, ignorant, and defiant do? That was so wrong. We're going to look at four quick things, and I want you to notice with me, first of all, how eerily similar their day was to our own. 
I mean, again, this is like 700 B.C. So we're a couple thousand years removed, and yet it is eerily similar. Some of the things that Isaiah says about the condition of the culture of Judah, 700 B.C., as it is for us today. The other thing I want you to bear in mind as we look at these four quick things is that this is going to be really dark at first. You're going to believe, wow, this is sad. This is terrible. This is tragic. But, you know, take heart because by the end, hang in there, there's a remedy that Isaiah also offers not only to the people of his day but to us as well. So here's the first thing. In chapter 1, if you still have your Bibles open at chapter 1, look at verse 10 through 13. This is what it says. In verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, pause for a moment. Isaiah is comparing Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah in their rebellion against God. He's not, he's not prophesying literally to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's been destroyed since the book of Genesis. But he's saying, you're like unto them. Verse 11, how so? The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies." Here's the first thing that Isaiah says about the people, that they practiced religion without a real heart for God. They practiced religion without a real heart for God. Now, you look at this list here, and you might think to yourself, well, wait, I thought God required them to bring sacrifices and offerings and to celebrate the new moon festivals and the feasts and all these things. And he did. But the difference is, and the reason he's pointing this out is because they were just going through the motions without the emotion. They were practicing religious duty, but there was a disconnect with the heart. They were just going through the rituals with no real heartfelt intent behind it. So God calls them out on it. He says, I know what you're doing. You're just, there's a lot of, you know, religiosity here. There's a lot of spiritualism. You're going through the rituals. You're going through all the routines. You're practicing the feasts, the festivals. Okay, but this is evil in my sight because you're not connected to me with your hearts. Now, Isaiah would later say something about this similarly in chapter 29, verse 13, when he would say this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus would even quote that verse in Matthew 15, verse 8, and apply it to his own generation. Jesus said, a lot of people who are doing a lot of religious things, but their hearts are far from me. And I think to myself, if Jesus walked among us today, Would he say the same thing about us, about our day, about our generation? A lot of people talk about God, but are they really connected to him? Is it a heartfelt relationship? There's a lot, I think you would agree with me in our culture, there's a lot of what I call God speak, a lot of religious talk, people mentioning God, talking about Jesus. You know, you can... You can turn on the television, you can see a lot of entertainers, celebrities, athletes, you can hear a lot of people, and not just on television, you can hear in conversation in the workplace, people talking about, you know, dropping Jesus' name, sometimes as an expletive, and sometimes because they have a relationship with him, no doubt. But I wonder in our day, when I hear somebody drop Jesus' name, I wonder what Jesus are they talking about? 
Are they talking about Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Are they talking about Mormon Jesus? Are they talking about the Muslim Jesus? Are they talking about the feel-good Jesus? Are they talking about the get-me-out-of-a-bind Jesus? Or, Or are they talking about the Jesus of the Bible, the Son of God Jesus, who came to the earth Jesus and died on a cross Jesus for our sins, who says, no one comes to the Father, nobody gets to heaven except through me. You can have your sins forgiven, but you got to come through me. That Jesus of the Bible, because that Jesus of the Bible, you start talking about that Jesus of the Bible, you'll clear the, the, the room at a dinner party, guaranteed. You'll clear the room at a dinner party. You start talking about that Jesus... It's amazing, it is amazing how tolerant people will be of the other Jesuses, but the moment you start talking about the Jesus of the Bible, how intolerant suddenly people will become of you. So when people start talking about God and Jesus, okay, I want to always give somebody the benefit of the doubt, but I do wonder, not as a matter of judgment, but just as a matter of a question these days, because there's so much God speak and religious conversation, do they know him? And is this the Jesus of the Bible who died on a cross, shed his blood for the sins of the world? What God wants is not just religious talk. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. He didn't just want your church attendance. He wants your heart. He's not impressed with what you give in the offering. He wants your heart. He's not impressed by raised hands and worship if the heart's not there. What he wants more than any of our religiosity or spiritual expressions is the heart. That's what he wants of us. He wants relationship with us. He wants our heart. The people of Judah at this time, they were guilty of just going through all the religious motions but not having a heart relationship with God. That's the first thing that they were guilty of. The second thing we see, if you move further, chapter 3. In chapter 3, look at verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, he says, Jerusalem staggers. This is chapter 3, verse 8. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Now, notice again, Judah is compared to Sodom. And when you read the Genesis account of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the things that is noticeable is how flagrant, open, and unashamed their sin was. And that's why Isaiah is comparing his generation to that day. Because he says there in verse 9, they parade their sin, and he says they do not hide it. They don't even blush about it. And so the second thing they were guilty of was that they celebrated sin. They celebrated sin. It was out there in the open. It was flagrant. They were unashamed. They didn't really care. How familiar does this sound? I mean, are we not living in a time when stuff that used to be commonly understood as immoral is not just tolerated in our day, but now celebrated? We're living in this day. You say, oh, well, Pastor G, no, no, it's, it's just we're trying to be more progressive. You know, we're trying to just be more open-minded about things. We don't want to live in the dark ages anymore. Hey, friends, let me, let me tell you. Progress is when we went from candles to the light bulb. Okay, progress is when we went from horse and buggy to an automobile. The moral decline of a nation is not progress. The moral decline of a nation is a precursor to its demise. 
Listen, I'm not just saying it. Look at history. Look at the great civilizations of Greece, Rome, Carthage. Just three, for example. When morality started to decline and immorality took root, you saw the eventual demise of that civilization. It's an historical fact. We have to be aware of this. Because what was true for the days of Isaiah is just as relevant and true for us today too. We must, as the church, let our light so shine before men that they might see our Father in heaven and glorify him. We have to be salt and light in our world. We have to share the loving good news of Jesus Christ and how he died for the sins of the world. So that as far as it goes for us, it will also lead to how our own country goes when we are the influence in our own culture to change it for the glory of God. Because it might be a slow death, but it will be an eventual death for any nation that allows morality to become redefined and unchecked and immorality takes root. Only the nation is blessed whose God is the Lord, Psalm 32, 12. When God is removed and sin is celebrated, we bring disaster upon ourselves. That's what Isaiah says in verse 9. He says, when, when, when you remove God and, and sin is celebrated, he says there at verse 9, you bring disaster upon yourselves. Daniel Webster said in 1820, Daniel Webster warned, he said, quote, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity, end quote. And it's true. Let's move on to chapter 5. If you would turn there in chapter 5 in your Bibles, I'm going to look at verses 8 through 12. I know it's dark, it's dark, but I'm going to get to the remedy here, so hold on. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. Verse 10, a 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Number three on our list was that they valued the work of man. Above the work of God. He's describing a culture that was preoccupied with self and personal ambition. He's describing a culture where materialism had become their God, where pleasure had become their goal. They were living large and forgetting God. Not too unlike our world. And how ironic is it that the one who is the source behind everything we enjoy is often the first we forget when we enjoy what we have. It's a terrible irony, but it's true. Luxury and materialism can blind us to the goodness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, before the Israelites moved into the promised land, Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, all right, now listen. Everybody listen up. He says, you're about to go into a spacious and fruitful land. 
And we're taking over homes and vineyards and wells and things because the people that were previously there, God has dispossessed them. And so now we're going to go in and we're going to occupy their homes and we're going to drink out of their wells and we're going to enjoy the fruit of their vineyards. And Moses warns in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you get into this wonderful land and you live in homes you did not build and you drink from wells you did not dig and you eat from the fruit of vineyards you did not plant, do not forget God. It's a strong warning for us. Because I'm so thankful I live in the greatest and freest nation in the world. And you talk about living in a lap of luxury. This is Loudoun County. How much more so then should we never forget the merciful, beneficent hand of God that has given us all that we enjoy? They were guilty of forgetting God. Keep looking further down. Chapter 5. I got one more point and then we'll talk about the good news. Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Isaiah says... In his day, people started calling the things that previously were called wrong, right. People started saying things that used to be sweet or bitter and bitter or sweet. And they started inverting a system of what was right and wrong. And they were guilty because they became their own moral standard. They started to define for themselves what they thought was right and wrong and bitter and sweet. Israel had refused to recognize God as the objective moral standard of right and wrong. Evil became subjective. Good became subjective. Evil is what I call it. Good is what I call it. What do you call it? And everybody had their own personal standard because they had rejected God as the objective moral standard for right and wrong. Now think about our own day. Think about this. Don't shout anything out because it's it's not a trick question, but there's not going to be an answer for it. Think of one thing, one thing that everybody can agree is evil, is wrong. There isn't anything. As long as man is his own moral standard, we'll never agree as to what is right and wrong. When man becomes his or her own standard of morality... There will never be agreement on things that are right and wrong. You think, well, wait a minute. What about something like, for example, something as severe as the Holocaust? Wasn't the slaughter of six million Jews evil? Can't we all agree on that? Well, the Nazi regime who exterminated six million Jews didn't think it was all that bad. And even recently, a few years ago, the former president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, said that the Holocaust didn't even happen. There's not even agreement on something as sinister and evil as the Holocaust. What about 9-11? Can we all agree that that was evil? There was a reporter after 9-11 who said this. One man's, quote, one man's evil is another man's justice. Now, what that reporter meant was that we who we would say are morally sensible would look at what happened at 9-11 and say that was evil. But the radical terrorists who committed the crime saw it as justice. Why is it we can't get even agreement on something like that? Listen to me very carefully. 
because man has lost his moral reference point, and man has made himself his own moral agent. And what happened in 740 B.C. is still happening today. So these are the indictments against the people of Judah 2,700 years ago. Now here's the good news, okay? In all of this, great, Gary, you've really brightened my day. Okay, now listen, listen. This is where, this last few minutes, this is where it gets really good. Despite all this, despite all the sin and mess and rebellion, the disobedience, the ignorance, the, the defiance, not just in Isaiah's day, but in our own day and frankly in our own hearts, in the middle of this, God says something very tender, and it's back in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, and it's verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, God takes two different things to illustrate his wonderful forgiving grace. He talks about sin being like scarlet or red like crimson. Both those colors are shades on the spectrum of red. And the only way in those days that you could get that color of scarlet or crimson, they, they would crush this shellfish that was indigenous to the Mediterranean region. And when they would crush this shellfish, it would emit kind of a purplish dye. And people then would dip their clothing in it to dye it. But once you did, there was no going back because the stain was permanent. What Isaiah the prophet is saying about our condition is the people of Judah like ourselves, no different. We've all been stained by sin. It cannot be removed, not in our own efforts. We can't do anything of ourselves to remove the stain of our sin. But God says, come now, let us reason together. You can't do anything about your sinful condition, but I can. And I can take the stain of a nation and the stain of a human heart and I can make it white like snow. And I can make it white like wool. And he uses the analogy of snow and wool to help them understand there can be a cleansing to the stain. God says, come now, let us reason together. Some ancient Hebrew scholars literally translated the Hebrew language where God says, come now, let us reason together, to literally say this, come, please, come, please, that there is actually a rest stop on the way to judgment. God beckons us, come, please, though your skin, though your your sin is like scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. Though your sin is like red like crimson, it shall be like wool. Because I, God says, will make all that is stained of your life clean. How many are thankful for the cleansing work of God in your life? Amen. And so the hope for a nation is the hope for every individual soul. 
If you're here today and you realize my life has been kind of stained by some of the stuff I've done, and you can't turn back the hands of time, I know, and you can't undo things, but God can remove the crimson stain and make us white as snow. And I just want to invite you to hear the words of the Lord saying, come now, let us reason together. Please come and receive the cleansing work through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's verse-by-verse study through the book of Isaiah here on Cornerstone Connection. We're glad we're able to bring you these teachings straight from God's Word. But we're even more glad you chose to spend time with us today. We love hearing from our listeners. So please give us a call if you have a moment and tell us how you've been impacted by this ministry. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. When you call, let us know how we can be praying for you. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings as he's been working his way through the Bible, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our entire archive is available there along with companion study resources. Just look under the teachings tab. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you happen to be. There's a link to that under the teaching tab. Or search for Cornerstone Chapel in your app store. If you're in the Leesburg area, you're invited to join us at Cornerstone Chapel for our weekly services. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's study of Isaiah. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know